let's get right to it. Uh, open your Bibles or your glowing electronic devices, whatever you need to go to to get to your Bible this morning. Let's go to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 36 through 50, and uh, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. We're going to read uh, all of this together, and then what we'll do is we'll kind of go back through it, read a little bit at a time, and break it down. But let's go ahead and read all of it together so that we get the big picture of what's going on, and then we can go back and kind of dissect it and see exactly what's going on. So Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, him being Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we dig into it, God, we come expecting you to speak to us for this is your word. I pray, God, that um, these words would not be mine today, but that we would hear from you, from your word, what you want to say to us today. And that God, seeing your son, Jesus, we would be changed. God, that we would be changed by your grace, that we would be changed by your love, uh, because God, that really is the only thing that has the power to change us at all. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it bears, uh, it bears upon us to mention again why Luke is writing. And he is writing, as it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, so that his readers may have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught about Jesus. So I want to just ask a simple question. What, what are the things you've been taught about Jesus? Hopefully you've been told that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that He lived a perfect life, that He died a substitutionary death on the cross, that He came back to life and, and lives 
that he saves, delivers, and heals. Hopefully you've heard that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Hopefully you've been taught that he is the only one who can actually forgive sin and that anyone who comes to him, anyone that comes to Jesus in faith, he will never reject. And so by looking at how Luke has presented Jesus to us through this gospel account, we should be able to find certainty about the things we've been taught about Jesus. If these are the things that we've heard, that we've been told, that we've been taught about Jesus, then we should be able to go to Luke and begin to hear those things either being affirmed or denied so that we can have, as he said in Luke 1 verse 4, certainty about the things we've been taught concerning Jesus. And so far, I believe we've seen that to be true. Here we are in chapter 7, and through the first several chapters of this book, if we literally walk together verse by verse through this book, we've seen uh, things about Jesus that are confirmations of what we've been taught about him. We've seen that Jesus, number one, can be trusted. He comes on the scene and he says some things about himself and then does what he says he came to do, which means what? He was not, well, let's put it this way. He was a man of his word, but we also know that he is God and God is not a man that he would lie. So he's a man of his word. He can be trusted. We have seen the things that he's claimed he's been sent. He is doing the things that he had been prophesied about Jesus in the Old Testament. We see them being fulfilled in Jesus. All of the prophecies about the Messiah are becoming true in Jesus as he lives and does his ministry as he goes. And at the same time, the evidences of sin in the world that are present around Jesus and the fruits of those things like sickness and disease and Demon possession and oppression of the mind, people who are bound up in their mind, we see those things becoming untrue wherever Jesus is and with whomever he touches. And so today, as we go to Luke 7, 36 through 50, we, we need to come with confidence knowing that Luke is going to give us something that's going to give us certainty about who Jesus is. In fact, this whole chapter kind of culminates and ends with that question of people going, who is this? And what do they say? Who even forgives sins? And so what is it that Luke is showing us here in this chapter culminating through all these things? We've seen uh, in the first part of the chapter, Jesus' ability and authority to heal, but not only his ability and his authority, but also his affection to do those things. We've talked about that, but here we are going to see that Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. And in the passage that we've already read, we've seen this unique interaction between Jesus, this Pharisee who's invited him uh, literally into the heart of his home, and this woman who kind of interrupts and breaks in on this scene. And the middle of this is broken up by a parable that Jesus tells to Simon about two debtors, and then it culminates in this declaration of forgiveness over the woman and an exclamation of the people, like we said, saying, who is this that can forgive sin? So who is this church? His name is Jesus. Who is this? This is the question that Luke is answering over and over again. And here we get to hear Luke answer, who is this? This is he 
who forgives sin. He alone can forgive sin because he alone is the lamb who is worthy and takes away the sin of the world. So let's kind of, like I said, let's walk through this together. Let's take a little section at a time. We'll talk about it and kind of dissect it together. Two resounding and complimenting tones that we're going to hear throughout kind of the song of this passage, and that is the tone of love and of grace. Uh, Grace given and love returned. You see, knowing that we have been loved by God is the only thing that can produce love in us. Love is not something that we can um, conjure up in and of and for ourselves. It literally has to be drawn out of us because we have been loved first. And there's no greater knowledge of love extended than the acknowledgement of forgiveness granted. The Bible says that every single one of us has eternity planted in our hearts in Ecclesiastes. And in Romans chapter 1, it says that every single one of us has also traded the truth about God for a lie and that we constantly suppress that truth about God in unrighteousness, which means every single person on earth, whether they will openly admit it or not, has a knowledge of God. They see him in creation. They see him in the things that he has done. They see him in the general grace that we've received, the very fact that we can breathe and our heart beats. We, we know that there is someone at work and we either accept that and believe it or we suppress it in unrighteousness. We all know. Knowing that there is a God, we also know that there's something that just doesn't line up between him and me, right? Us and him. We, we live with that knowledge. We, we walk around with an understanding that God is probably, like if, if I had to ask you, you know, what, what do you think God really, really thinks about you? I mean, I would hope that some of us have heard the gospel enough to go, you know what? My gut says he probably is not really happy with me, but I know because of what the Bible says that I'm his child and therefore I know I'm loved. But if we just had to go on our gut, like if, if I had to get up here and we had the ability through technology to put up a screen and for me to project all my thoughts and everything that I've did this week, I wouldn't really want that to happen because it hasn't been real great. I don't know about you. I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about me. Wouldn't, I would not volunteer for that to happen because maybe some of my thoughts were about some of you. I don't know. And I know that about myself, and I know that God's not pleased with that. So my gut reaction, if you had to say, what do you really think God thinks about you? And I'd look at just my behavior, I'd be like, God, probably not real happy with me. Praise God that God's not looking at us for our behavior to be pleased with us, but rather he's looking at what Jesus has done for us, our faith that he's given us to believe in him, and in that he is pleased with us and calls us sons and daughters. Um, so the only thing that can produce that love in us is, is to know that God has loved us first. The only thing that can cause us to move from a place that the Bible says where we are at enmity with God. The first place where we see that word enmity 
is between the serpent and the woman in Genesis. And God talks about how that there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman. But then the Bible also talks about how that because of sin, that we are at enmity with God. And the only thing that can change that is for God to grant forgiveness. And in, and in knowing that God has granted forgiveness, it produces in us what? Love for him, which can only come because he's loved us first. So let's go. Luke 7, 36, first sentence, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, right off the bat, just at face value, we see Jesus accepting the invitation of this Pharisee. And at first glance, just at first glance, it seems like, I mean, this guy's on the right track. He's inviting Jesus, like I said earlier, literally into the heart of his home to his table but we'll find out later in this passage that he did not even pay Jesus the customary respects given to any guest that would come in his home, let alone a guest of honor. You see, there, was, there were certain um, cultural uh, P's and Q's that were supposed to be minded when someone came into your home. And one of the most basic cultural, customary respects that you would give to any guest who came into your home was to wash their feet. Why? Because the roads weren't all paved. And they walked around in dirt and muck and mire and animal crud all day in sandals, right? And so you come into someone's home. I mean, think about how often sometimes we'll actually take off our shoes when we come into someone's house. Imagine if you were walking around without any shoes on, just sandals all the time, just dirt, mud, mud, doesn't matter, whatever. And you come into someone's house. I mean, we already think about taking off our shoes. But what if you're just there, you're bare feet, and it's just mud. It's like, sorry, what, what do you do? So because of that, the culture kind of dictated when someone comes into your home, either you have a servant or you yourself get down and you wash their feet. It was a customary given to any guest that would come into their home. But if you had a guest of honor come into the home, that's where you might see not only are we going to wash their feet, but here you've been out in the sun all day. You've been walking, perspiration. There's no deodorant back then, no antiperspirant. So they would take ointment and they would give you ointment for your head, a refreshing, and they would greet you with a kiss. And, and we know from Middle Eastern uh, culture that that's still something that happens today. Even men will, will embrace each other and give each other a kiss on the cheek. It's not, you know, it's not anything weird or, you know, any funny, nothing like that. It's just what they do. And here we see that this man, who was a, a leader in his community, invites Jesus into his home, but he doesn't even wash his feet, let alone greet him with a kiss or give him ointment for his head. So we realize at second glance that he has most likely invited Jesus here for his own amusement. I mean, there's Game of Thrones isn't on. I mean, there's... No, no football game to watch, right? Finals are over. What are we going to do tonight? I heard about this Jesus character. Let's invite him over and have a good laugh. Is literally the posture and the attitude that we see this Pharisee has. So hear me, church, in this where we are reminded that the God of the universe does not need our acceptance. 
He does not have a self-esteem issue. Jesus does not have a self-esteem problem. He doesn't need our acceptance. The God of the universe does not need our invitation. We are the ones in need of his invitation. We are the ones in need of his acceptance. And there are many, even in the church, who will put on the outer show of religion. Like you don't have to be around church people and church stuff too long before you pick up the lingo and you kind of see how people dress and okay you got to get this kind of bible and and you know carry it in this hand and and when I come and get my little moleskin I'll write my notes and oh I heard what they said I'll start saying those things and we can kind of pick up the trappings of churchiness and christiany stuff and never get Jesus and people will do that we need to be mindful of that ourselves that we can be prone to do that we can hang around the church and do churchy things and never actually submit to the lordship of Jesus in our lives. And the people who do this, they will be the ones who in the end will say, Lord, Lord. And they will hear the master say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We, we hang around churchy stuff and think that if we can just get some of it to brush up on us that we'll be okay but when what we really need is the acceptance and the invitation of Jesus himself Jesus is not concerned with this Pharisee's acceptance of him nor is he there to entertain and amuse him that's not why Jesus showed up let me tell you why Jesus showed up because God told him to go and this woman was coming and there was something that Jesus needed to do, which is what? To proclaim good news to the poor. So let's carry on. Verse 37 through 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the text says woman of the city, Okay, woman of the city. Luke does not mean that she has an apartment downtown. Okay? She doesn't have a flat down by the Pearl Brewery and she enjoys drinking coffee at local and eating Parisian macaroons at Bakery Lorraine. Okay, that's not what this is talking about. When he says a woman of the city, he, she's not saying she's simply a city dweller. This statement has to do with her character. It has to do with the way in which she makes her living, which is most probably in selling bodily favors to the men of the city. We, we see acknowledgement of this in that it says that she was a sinner, right? Now, it'd be easy for us to sit back and go, well, yeah, I mean, everyone is a sinner, right? But no, when it says, and she was a sinner, what it's talking to is not that she is simply a sinner in a general sense like we all are, but rather that she is a sinner in a specific sense, in the sense that her sin is very public and her identity has literally become what she does and what she does is sin. But watch. We watch this dear soul, this public sinner, after hearing that Jesus is in her town at the Pharisee's home, which she would never be welcomed into, not by the front door anyways, 
she comes in and weeping, she begins to wash Jesus' feet. Here we cannot help but be reminded what it says in Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Surely this woman has already heard the good news. These are not tears of penance. They are tears of joy. They are tears of happiness because she has already been forgiven. Jesus has been teaching in that region. We see that in the text we've already read in the past weeks. He's healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom, and hearing. Uh, she is hearing the good news of peace with God through faith in this Jesus who is the Christ And she has heard and believed in her faith, and she has been redeemed and reformed. But so new is her reformation, watch this, that the outer vestments of her old sinful nature have not yet fully been removed. She still looks like a prostitute. But notice that Jesus is not looking on the outside, but rather at what is in the heart. However, he will show us through what he says to Simon that the outward is a revelation of what's in the heart. Not in what we say or how we look, but rather in our response to Jesus. So hear me, as we have new and young disciples come into our church, We're going to get to see the beauty of the sanctification process. And it will be messy (laughs) and beautiful and messy. Did I mention it's going to be messy and beautiful and frustrating, but beautiful? Why? Because... Sometimes we, in our own pride and in our own self-righteousness, we, we get a little Pharisee in us. When people, God is still working on someone and the outer vestments of their old nature still hasn't been completely changed. We will get to watch as those who hear the gospel, whether for the first time or with new ears, they come to faith and God begins the work of salvation in them. But like with all of us, it's a work, right? It's a work in progress. It's a process. And we have to make room for that process. Jesus accepts this dear one right where she is. He doesn't say, wait, hang on, hang on, sweetheart, you... You need to go change before you come to me. He just accepts her right where she is. As he accepts you, as he has accepted me. God loves us the way that we are. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. And so we come into his presence just as we are. But it's in his presence that he begins to change us. Not that we change ourselves. He changes us. 
Bible talks about God exchanging our tattered robes of sin for robes of righteousness. He's doing the work there. He's doing the exchange. We simply receive from him. So we see him washing his feet, these beautiful feet that have brought the good news to her. Here she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears, and we cannot help but be reminded what it says in the Psalms, that God put the tears of his own dear children in a bottle. Not one tear drops to the ground unnoticed, unattended, but rather it is swept up and cherished. Perhaps your life, or even in just recent days, you've cried a lot of tears. Not one has been missed by God. Not one. Not one tear ignored. Take comfort in that. Notice that Jesus does not withdraw, but allows this woman to pour out what is nothing short of worship, both in spirit and in truth. And just imagine, his feet haven't been washed. And as those first tears begin to hit, they just begin to almost furrow through the dirt on his feet. And and you see just traces of where these tears have fallen. And not one escapes Jesus' attention, even though at the moment he's not even looking at her. Remember, later on he turns and faces her, but right now he's turned inward towards the table, but he's, he's noticing everything that she's doing. And we don't know if she planned. It's, I mean, how do you plan? I'm going to go in. I'm going to begin to cry. And as I cry, I'm going to allow my tears to fall on his feet. And as they do, I'm going to dry them with my hair. And, and then maybe I'll pour this ointment. It's, it's not that she had this plan to come in there and do it, but perhaps she came in knowing he was there and then seeing her Lord, her master, the one she believes to be the Christ, and he's at the table. And she sees that his feet haven't even been washed. He hasn't even been given the customary respects to a guest. And she just begins to cry. And as her tears fall, they they fall. And she sees that now what was just dirt is now mud. And she doesn't even know. And and she's overcome. And imagine as she gets down on the floor. And what, what do I do now? And just begins to undo her hair. Perhaps it's plaited up and she just undoes it. It falls and, and she just begins to, to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. So close and intimate she now is with the Lord and not only her tears, but now, I mean, imagine as she's down there trying to wipe his feet with her hair, her hot, <laughs> sticky breath. I mean, she's a hot mess. Her ardor of weeping But she doesn't care, and neither does Jesus. He doesn't pull away. He allows it. And then she takes the glory that God has given to her, which is her hair, right? Scripture talks about in 1 Corinthians 11 that the glory of a woman is her hair. She takes her hair, this special, intimate thing that God has gifted to the woman. It's it's an adornment, not not a washcloth, not a hand towel. And she begins 
to dry his feet. And then she doesn't stop there. She anoints them with costly ointment. Now, Mike, how do you know it's costly? Didn't say costly. No, but it says it was in an alabaster box. An alabaster was this translucent stone that was reserved for the most costly of perfumes and ointments. It wasn't for just any oil or any thing. It was for the most costly of perfumes, and it only had one seal. So once you broke that seal, that was it. Usually it was reserved for burial, to be poured out. And here she breaks the seal and she pours out this ointment. Imagine as the aroma of that ointment began to even overtake the aroma of the food that had been served as she anointed Jesus' feet. Think about this. The oil represents what? Anointing. She is anointing Jesus' feet. The precious, beautiful, but probably yet very dirty feet of Jesus. What, what is this? Well, let's remember that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title. And what does Christ mean? Anointed. What is she doing here? She is literally, through her actions, proclaiming her answer to the question, who is Jesus? He is the anointed one. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. This is her answer to the Jesus question. He is the anointed one of God. And then she smothers his feet with kisses. The most intimate of touches that we have available to us as human beings. The kiss. Reserved normally for the most prominent of places on our body, right? Hopefully the cleanest. But she gets down and on hands and knees begins to smother Jesus' feet, the most abused part of our bodies. We're on them all the time. And she begins to smother his feet with kisses. There's no mistaking it now. This is pure, unadulterated, beautifully undignified, wonderfully accepted worship of Jesus. She is unashamed, unafraid. What can man do to her now? She has found the Messiah. And the Pharisee, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, I, I'm, I'm a cynic. I just am. And I know that probably there was some outer kind of, you know, signals. But at the same time, I know that culture so well that if you were a prostitute, you didn't really go into public looking like one all the time. There had to be some more subtle things about that because uh, you could just be seized and stoned on the spot. Now, text doesn't tell us, but I'm enough of a cynic to just kind of go here and I'm just saying, how did he know? And if he did know, why hadn't he dragged her into the city square to be stoned yet? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, 
He knew. How did he know? And she's still alive. Just saying. We'll have to find out when we get to heaven, I guess. We probably won't care. But, but see, while the woman is outwardly declaring love, devotion, and worship to the one she believes to be the Christ, he is unwilling to even relent the office of prophet to Jesus. Do you hear that in what he's saying? I mean, he believes that there are prophets. Like, that's not, a, that's not an issue. He, he has memorized, he's a Pharisee, which means he has memorized the entire Old Testament. He believes in prophets. But he is unwilling even to give the office of prophet to Jesus. Here in what he says, if this man were a prophet, which means he doesn't believe that he's even a prophet, let alone the Messiah or the Son of God. Not only that, but he sees the grace offered to the woman by virtue of Jesus not shooing her away as he would have done if she had tried to pay the same respects to him. He would be like one talked about in Isaiah 65 that would say to the woman, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am too holy for you. Did you know that the holier than thou kind of thing that people talk, that's actually from the Bible, from Isaiah 65. You know what God says about those people who act holier than thou? In that same chapter, God says that they are like smoke in his nostrils continually all day long. An insult. Right? Like, Ever been around? I mean, we love guys, Father's Day. We love being around the grill, around the campfire, but you can only take so much smoke in your face, right, before you start moving out of the way. It's an insult to your sensibilities, right? We got to move. And God says that people who are holier than thou, who who would say to people, keep to yourself, don't come near me, I'm, I'm too holy for you, that those people to God are like a continual smoke in his nostrils, an insult. You see, we can come so close and miss the whole boat. And this man sat at the same table as Jesus and yet did not believe. I was brought to tears this week as I was studying this passage and specifically remembering the psalm about God keeping the tears of his people in a a bottle. I went back and I read it and I couldn't help but wonder if this woman had this psalm in her mind, in in her heart as she came to Jesus, compelled by the grace of God and her love for him in return as she fell at Jesus' feet. I want to read it to you. Listen to what the psalmist says. Imagine the scene that we've just described to you and think about the kind of horrific things that this woman must have endured at the hands of evil men and how that even her own sin, as it becomes for all of us, became her prison. And being a prisoner of that sin became her identity and what an announcement of grace and God's love and acceptance toward her must have felt like. Listen to this, Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me. 
for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. And as they have waited for my life, for their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day that I call. This I know, that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then hear this. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. I hear this psalm and I see her determination to render her thank offerings to the one who's delivered her soul from death. And she will now, from now on, walk before God in the light of life. She's received grace and love is the response it always is. So at first glance, we see a religious man with all the outward show of religion. If anyone had to just look at them, they, they would think that he would have right standing with before God because of his works. And then we see a woman who's like the polar opposite. Outwardly, you would not believe that her and God were close at all. And yet, we see two very different responses to the personage of Jesus. And there's a beautiful and poignant paradox here, and Jesus is about to call the Pharisee out on it and teach us a lesson about grace and love and forgiveness. Not only the kind of grace, love, and forgiveness that we need to have for each other, but more importantly, the grace, love, and forgiveness that we have received from him, which is the source for our love for him and for others. This is the gospel at work. And hear me, church, it is the power behind our love for God and for others, the fact that he has loved us first. So let's read on. Verses 40 through 43. Jesus answered Simon, and, and just notice what it said, Simon thought, and then it says, and Jesus answered him. <laughs> So is Jesus at least a prophet? Oh yeah, you better believe it. But he's about to show that he's more than a prophet. Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus tells this parable, and in doing so, he reveals three hearts. The heart of the Pharisee, the heart of the woman, and the heart of God, which is his heart. Three characters, one problem, one solution, but two very different responses. Now the debtors owed different amounts, but both were just as unable to pay. I can't help but think of an illustration that I've heard before. Someone said, right. Two people, you guys, great, I need you to swim from San Diego to Hawaii. On your mark, get set, go. San Diego to Hawaii, just in case you bad with geography, it's really, really, really long, far way to go, right? One person swims 100 yards. The other person, they're used to doing like triathlons. They get a mile. But at the end 
of 100 yards, the one person who's completely out of shape still drowns, and the guy that made it a mile, he still drowns. Why? Because you're in the middle of the ocean, and you're never going to make it to Hawaii. The guy who made it a mile has no cause for boasting in, in his accomplishment simply because he made it further than the other guy. Neither of them made it to Hawaii. Right? Can I get a witness? All right? Doesn't matter that the one guy only owed 50 and the other owed 500. Neither of them were able to pay. Now, we have to understand that in the context with which Jesus tells this story, we have to know that these two men have exhausted all possible avenues for paying off the debt. Why? Because in Jesus' time, in his day, where they were, if you owed someone a debt, and when time came to pay that debt, if you were unable to pay, it did not matter how much that debt was, the person whom you owed the money to had every right under the law to throw your rear in debtor's prison or put you into servitude in his house as a slave. So you didn't run around going, hey, you know, oh, right, doggone it, I, yeah, you know, it's been a bad month. You know, can you just give me 30 more days. Just, no, it's time to pay the day. You don't have the money, you get to come and work for free. Oh, you don't want to work for free? You're not going to be a good little slave in my house? Then fine, you go straight to debtor's prison. Right? So we have to kind of understand what's going on there. And so this is what is facing these debtors as the time to reconcile their accounts comes. But rather, and both of them come knowing they can't pay. Right? Time, time to pay. You have to come. You have to show up. Here we are. You owe me money. Where's my money? I don't have your money. And rather than the gavel coming down in a sentence of slavery or prison, they get an acquittal and forgiveness. Their debt, which they decidedly owed, right? There was no like, well, I didn't really owe you that money. I mean, did you say I had to pay that? None of that. They owed it. But their debt is canceled. And rather than slavery or prison, they're set free with nothing owed, a clean slate. And Jesus poses a question. Which debtor do you suppose loved the money lender more? So I ask you, how much do you owe? I'm not talking about money. And how much have you been forgiven? Have you received that declaration of forgiveness or are you just hoping that it's there? Church, I have good news for you. Jesus is the one who forgives. And the Pharisee cannot help but give the right answer, the obvious one. The one who's been forgiven more will love more. It's the true answer. But then watch as Jesus changes his posture. He he turns from Simon. He faces the woman. And turning to the woman, he said, verse 44, Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water. You didn't give me a kiss or ointment. You you did nothing for me. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. Now, here's where Jesus completely unravels the whole scene for us. He shows that he can not only read thoughts, but he sees the heart. 
right? We're reminded of in Samuel, for God looks not in the outward appearance, but at the heart. Simon paid no honor to Jesus. Rather, he was paying himself an honor. He thought he was worthy of this Jesus to come and sit at his table to entertain him. Clueless that he was playing court to the king of the universe. It's paramount to the court jester unknowingly hosting the king at his common table and treating him like a peasant. Don't you know that I'm a jester in the king's court? You should feel honored to sit at my table. What a joke. And in this story... I read this with a friend this weekend, and we, we talked about, well, you know, Jesus tells a story. He says that, you know, both were forgiven. I mean, are the two debtors in the story the Pharisee and the woman? And, and, and I was kind of lost on that. I, I didn't really know. I, well, maybe, maybe this guy was forgiven, but he was just forgiven so little he just didn't even realize it. But I really don't think that Simon is the other debtor in the story at all. He's outside the story. He does not believe that he owes anything. Therefore, forgiveness does him no good. What is there to love for what has been forgiven? But perhaps Jesus is actually telling him that he's the next debtor in line. Two debtors come up. There's a whole line of debtors in the queue. Two debtors come up, both owed and both were forgiven, and the Pharisees next in line. Perhaps seeing these two let off and thinking he's deserving of the same grace, forgetting that the lender is God, who says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, grace is up to the one giving it, not the one in need of it. I say this because he had not even a little love for Jesus, which shows what? He had not even been forgiven a little. All of this points to God's sovereign choice and salvation so that as it says again in Romans 9, 16, so it depends then not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is the one who seeks. He is the one who chooses. He is the one who is owed. And as he is the one who is owed, it is only he who can forgive. And he forgives whom he chooses. How wonderful it is then to hear the announcement of forgiveness. And if you are seeking after God, then the Bible tells us that that means he has already chosen you for forgiveness. That those who come to him are only those who are drawn by the Father. And whoever comes to him, he will never reject The Pharisee cannot understand the grace extended to this woman, this sinner. And sometimes we lose sight of our own debt and the forgiveness that we have been given. We take on the spirit of a Pharisee and begin to look down our noses at others. We need to repent. We need to realize how proud and arrogant we've become. We need to remember what we have been forgiven. We need to look into the blazing light of the perfection of Jesus And see that there are still things that need cleaning up in our own lives. We need to see the plank in our own eye before we start pointing out the speck in our brother's and sister's eyes. 
We are all blasphemers of God and have in different ways, times, and passions traded the truth about God for a lie. And in preaching about this very passage of Scripture, Spurgeon is quoted as saying about the sinful woman, grace has pitched upon the most unlikely cases in order to show itself to actually be grace. If grace came upon those who seemed like they deserved it, we'd never really know if it was actually grace or if they actually deserved it. (laughs) But we find all through the text that God sets his love on those who are the most undeserving and the most unworthy. So Spurgeon goes on to say, it has found a dwelling place for itself in the most unworthy heart that its freeness might be better seen. Her loving was not the cause of her forgiveness. And Jesus turning to her in the end here and saying, your sins are forgiven. It, it was not in, Jesus was not responding to what she did. What she was doing was a response to the forgiveness she had already received from Jesus. But hear the grace in what he offers her, right? She's already believed she's forgiven. That's why she's there. And the love that she pours out is a response to that grace and forgiveness that she's received. But yet still, Jesus turns to her He doesn't leave her guessing. He doesn't leave her wondering. He doesn't leave her hoping. She already believed it. She was justified before she walked through the doors. But he turns to her and confirms it, and he says, your sins are forgiven. How many long days and nights did those words carry her till she finally found her resting place again at her Savior's feet? How many long nights of the soul Did she hear those words again, even after she fell, after she failed to hear those words spoken over her again? Your sins are forgiven. They're words that we need to remember and hear spoken over us continually. Things that we need to remind ourselves when we fall and when we fail. That God has, through Christ, declared that our sins have been forgiven. And if you believe it, you'll love him. If you believe it, you'll love him. And love always seeks union, like magnets being drawn together. Love always seeks union. Church, you have been loved by God in Christ. He came, and he not only lived a perfect life, but he died a perfect death for you and in your place. It was a substitution. The death and the penalty that you deserve, that I deserve, Jesus took on himself. That is love. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and offered up his life as a sacrifice for us. We are all of us debtors And apart from grace, we will remain black and defiled till our dying day. No amount of contrition on our part or acts of holiness or sacrificial promises kept can usher us from debtor's prison, nothing but the grace and the blood of Jesus. And today it is offered to every single one of us. Jesus forgives sin. He forgives sin. He forgave this woman. 
and he offers forgiveness to us. So I pray as we close. Let the flaming torch of the love of Jesus be brought into every one of our hearts so that all our passions should be set ablaze with love for him. And as we come to a time of communion at the Lord's table, my prayer is that love would seek union with Christ today. That the forgiveness that we have been offered would be received, that it would be believed and believing we have been forgiven and received grace, that we would love much today. Don't let communion simply be a ritual that you go through this morning, but let it be an act of worship. As you take the bread and you drink from the cup or you dip the bread in the juice, remember this woman who poured out her love And know that your love, however broken or unseemly it may seem to you, is accepted by your Savior who loves you so very much. He's not looking, he's not looking for a perfect example. He was that. He's looking for those who will accept his invitation, who will receive his acceptance. Amen. Peace be with you.